Endless Hustle is presented by Victory Brewing Company and the Victory Monkeys. Check out Golden Monkey, a smooth 9.5% Belgian triple with notes of banana and cloves. Sour beer is more your thing? Pucker up with Sour Monkey, a 9.5% sour triple with fruity notes from imported Belgian yeast. Delicious 9.5% ABV beers that don't taste like 9.5% beers? The Victory Monkeys just hit different. Check out the Victory Monkeys at victorybeer.com to find Golden Monkey and Sour Monkey at retailers near you. Hello, Endless Hustlers. Episode 119 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Your fearless leader, Arthur Cade, is back, and we've got an incredible triple header ahead. We're kicking it off with an office favorite, actually the office favorite, Kevin Malone himself, Brian Baumgartner is joining me on the show. He's got a brand new book called Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, an oral history of the office. It is awesome because who better to tell us about the iconic show than the guy who ended up on top at the end with his own bar. Absolutely love Brian. It's incredible to see the difference between Brian in real life versus Kevin Malone. Always a great interview. And it's the second time he's been on the show. So he's a friend of the show, which is great. Our next guest is Keith David, the legendary actor. He is starring in Creepshow Season 2. Unbelievable career for this guy, and we're jumping into it. Talks about Platoon and so many other memorable projects that he's had. I think you guys are going to love that chat. And then we're finishing up the episode with the founders of one of my favorite breweries, because I'm a Philly guy, everyone knows that. Victory Brewing Company is an institution. It's in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, which if you guys don't know where Downingtown is, it's a suburb outside of Philadelphia, but they've created some of the best beers on the planet. Awesome to have these guys on the show talking about building their empire. Uh, It was awesome because I'm like, you'll hear all about this, but like they have these beers called the Monkeys, but Golden Monkey, which is like one of my all-time favorites, and then Hop Devil. These guys are just iconic in the beer industry, and the story of how they built this empire is awesome. So let's just jump right into it. First up, the office superstar, Brian Baumgartner, talking about his new book and his incredible career. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustles. I'm welcoming friend of the show, recurring guest. Brian Baumgartner, congratulations. The brand new book, The Oral History of Dunder Mifflin. Anything when I see oral histories of something I love, I'm in. Like Bill Simmons and The Ringer do this all the time. And then when I saw you had the book, I'm like, I'm fucking in. Let's roll. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. It was was so, so fun uh, to put together and go back and and share, uh, well, that decade of our lives with uh, so many people that I worked with. Uh, after seven, eight years since we filmed anything, going back was awesome. So when you start bringing all the cast together and start getting their versions of the stories and them explaining the different moments, what were kind of some of the surprises? What were some of the, the, the interesting tidbits that you may have not been aware of that really uncovered themselves through the process? Well, look, I mean, there was there was quite a lot. And and I I really approached uh, the the book and putting the book together as a as an exploration. Right. So like very different from like, let me tell you how it went through the time on the office and telling stories. I mean, we do tell behind the scenes stories, but really, for me, it was about trying to to unpack what happened uh, and why now the show 
is the most watched show on television today? Like, what are there any clues from what happened in casting or, or you know, bringing on certain certain people in certain key roles? And so, for me, um, I was less interested in fact, but more the question of of why this happened and hearing from so many people. So, like, an oral history is not fact. It is by definition, it is what different people remember. So what we've attempted to do is to put together uh, multiple people's memories. And, you know, that means some things I knew about, but remembered very differently, and other things I had never heard about. So one example was the show starts to take off. We start to add cast members, uh, Ed Helms, Ellie Kemper, etc. We start getting enormous and NBC goes to um, co comes to the producers on the show and says, of course, because they're a mega corporation, we need to save money. We, we, need, we need to find some ways to save money. Um, and the producers at the time were there. Mike Schur is the one who told me this, this story, but Steve Carell had become a producer and was there and Greg Daniels and, and many of the others. And they said, okay, we need to find a way to save money. And uh, the idea was brought up by an NBC executive that we needed to, to cut some cast members. I mean, it was a show about a dying paper industry with people not doing their jobs all that well. So it would have been logical for some people to have, to have been let go. And the idea came up from an NBC executive that we save money by cutting some of the cast. And Steve Carell allegedly said, no, 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 that's not happening. And there was silence in the room and the conversation was never brought up again. And so the idea at you know, that me sitting in the corner, uh, on, on, you know, I had no idea that this conversation, that this was a discussion that happened or that this conversation took place. And, you know, to me, it's a cool story, but to me, it also illustrates how close we had become, what a family we were, and how important every single person was uh, as a part of the ensemble to the overall success of the show. So, I mean, look, that's just one of, of many stories that I heard of, of either funny things that happened or heroic events that took place, but that one obviously for me stands out. I mean, Brian, if you couldn't make Steve any more likable already, you pretty much just won him the Nobel Prize right yeah. there. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny, Jenna Fisher in our conversation, we were talking about when Steve left and, and Will Ferrell came in. And Jenna says to me, you know, I think that there's this, uh, this uh, competition that's happening in Hollywood between Steve Carell and Will, Will Ferrell of who is the nicest guy. Like who is the nicest guy to work with and for in Hollywood? And uh, it's true, they both are. And in fact, when I, when I thought of the question, so I didn't start at the very beginning of talking to everybody, but once I thought of the question, I asked everybody about Steve leaving, uh, what was the greater loss to the show? Michael Scott, or Steve Carell. And it's like, it sounds cute. And like, what are you doing? But truly the question was, I mean, Michael Scott was an iconic 
character central to the office, obviously. But my point really was Steve uh, Carell was equally a good guy and a leader of all of us uh, behind the scenes. So uh, it was interesting to hear people talk about that. There were so many tidbits in this book as an office super fan myself. There were so many tidbits where I was just like, wow, what if? Like the one, and I'm going to go through a ton of them, but the Kristen Wig casting for Pam. And then there was, of course, the famous SNL skit where when Rain Wilson hosted, he came out and Sudeikis played Jim. But then Kristen Wig was at the desk in Pam's position. And you could see the dichotomy between what Jenna brought to Pam versus what Kristen would have probably brought to Pam. And as great as Kristen Wig is, listen, she's an A-plus lister and brilliant actress and comedian. It's hard to imagine anyone else being Pam other than Jenna. Yeah, well, there's a lot of discussion about that uh, in the book, actually. Also, that um, I asked, so really Greg Daniels and Ken Quapas, who was the director of the pilot, and, and others, um, who was... Who, when you saw right away, who was who was it? Who who was the person? And I think my expectation was kind of would be Rain Wilson, right? Like he had achieved um, potentially kind of the he was potentially the best known person in the cast before. Actually, he had done um, a, a season on Six Feet Under that was very big, especially in Hollywood, whatever that means at the time, and he was. Uh, you know, he's just a weird nerd oddball, like seems perfect for Dwight. I think that was my expectation. And really all of them said Jenna, that, that as soon as, as Greg started talking to Jenna for, for him, she was, she was it. There was another one that came up that I thought was fascinating. And that was obviously James Spader. Obviously when he came in as Robert California, listen, replacing Carell and Michael Scott, it's like replacing Michael Jordan, right? Anyone you bring in after, they're not Michael Jordan. Right. Farrell had a great moment, but everyone knew he was a guest star. Robert California had a very polarizing and divided opinion, but it was fascinating because through the book, we see that you guys weren't even that big a fan of what Spader brought to the table. And I thought that was such an interesting take to actually see the internal belief that this may not be working as well. Well, you know, for me, I mean, I'll speak for myself um, because, I mean, there is no doubt. And, I, and I'm and i not just saying this, like James Spader is, I mean, he is- He's brilliant. He's, he's he is, brilliant. He's, he is brilliant. I think really what the discussion was, was do we need somebody else to come in from the outside? Like that, that's really where the discussion came because I think what the expectation was, and, and by the way, I think in, in reality, this is what happened, um, that, that Steve had, and, and part of why he says he left, right? I mean, it's seven years, he's been an enormous movie star. And he, that he, as Michael Scott had served as sort of the central figure with the most storylines um, you know, throughout the show, and he, it was, he felt like his story had been told and he wanted a progression and a journey and that he had reached that point. So um, he, he felt like it was time for him to go. And I think what we all thought was, well, we now have this established cast here. We now have this established ensemble 
that we can start hearing from them a little bit more. And again, I think we did. Um, but did, you know, did we need to bring in um, a big gorilla, as I think Paul Lieberstein, you know, did we need a big gorilla and, and asked who had just taken did a big gorilla. And I think there was a conversation internally, which was, do we at this point, like the characters are so well established and, and quite frankly loved at that point, what if we, what if we focus more energy on getting, on hearing more of those stories as, a, as opposed to needing to kind of replicate the, the structure that existed with, with Michael Scott. I also want to talk about Kevin Malone buying the bar at the end, because I, I didn't realize, I, it didn't click for me until probably like the third or fourth time that I saw that ending. I was like, how the fuck did Kevin get enough money to actually buy this bar? Not that you're going to probably spend 30 million, but you probably got to throw in a couple hundred grand. And I'm guessing Kevin didn't have a couple hundred grand saved, right? But there were alternate endings shot that actually explained that. That blew my mind. Yes. So there was a big uh, chain on Reddit, which essentially the conspiracy theory was that Kevin was a secret genius and had been embezzling money from Dunder Mifflin all along. And that's how he got the bar. But yes, there was a story that was shot. And as I've said to people now, I don't remember. This, this, the series finale was like an hour and 45 minutes, right? Like it was really long. So eventually they started cutting stuff. And the story that was shot was once the documentary, right? So if you stay with me, the, the show that had been being shot by this PBS crew for nine years. Once that aired, the characters would change. And, and so it had to be over. And the story is once that aired, Kevin Malone became a fan favorite and became like maniacally popular. And I have t-shirts in my office here that have like weird drawing of Kevin's face. Like Kevin is awesome that like supposedly fans made and so every time Kevin went into a bar, he was offered to a drink from people. There was only so much that a person can consume. So the particular bar that he spent most of his time in, the storyline was he had a, he had um, he had amassed such a credit from the bar that he uh, that was his leverage for uh, becoming an owner or part owner of the bar. So that that's what happened. You were just in Scranton. I mean, you've been everywhere promoting this book, but going to Scranton, I, you're essentially, I wouldn't even say there's cult fame. You're their A-list celebrities. Like the office is to Scranton what Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are to Hollywood. When you end up going back to Scranton, what is that experience like? Oh, I, I truly, I love the the... I love it so much. And I, you know, Angela Kenzie and I um, were two of the first people that showed up in sort of a official capacity at first. And we were just blown away. I mean, I talk about that trip in the introduction to the book um, where I started to feel like this, something, something is, something's happening um, as Michael would say, but uh, yeah, I, I love it there. I, I love the people. So many have become so, such close friends uh, of mine now. So, you know, when we, you know, everybody goes to New York to, you know, publicize a book and go and you do 
the Today Show and the this and that and all that's nice. Um, but I we felt like, well, if we're really going to launch the book the way it should be launched, we've got to go back to Scranton and and one give them the opportunity to celebrate the book with us and 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 celebrate with them. So I had Stevie Van Zant on the show a couple of weeks ago, and obviously Stevie was still on The Sopranos, which is my all-time favorite drama show, amazing. And I asked him what he thought happened to Sill, spoiler alert, even though it's 20 years later, after assuming and after he comes out of his coma after being shot. And Stevie's response was, funny you asked and thank you for asking. I've actually written multiple scripts about that and pitched it to David Chase. And it got me thinking about Kevin Malone was so beloved. Have you actually taken the time to think through that if NBC or any other network came to you and said, Brian, what do you think Kevin Malone's life is like now? Is there something written, thought out? Do you have the game plan in your head? You know, um, that's a, that is, first of all, that's a genius way to ask the question that everybody asks <laughs> about the office coming back in one form or another. Um, I certainly have thought about it and I, my, my hope, my sincere hope and desire is that he is still like, I like to do uh, tending bar at his bar in Scranton. That's what I hope. Okay. That's a great way to jump around it. I love it, by the way. <laughs> You'd recently, and I know it's been news out there, but I just saw you talking about it again, making a fortune off Cameo. Does it ever get tiresome, by the way? Like, are you into it because you love the fans? Or is it like, holy cow, do I have to record another 2,000 messages here? Well, look, I th this sounds super weird, but I honestly, this is the case because... I was uh, I was hesitant about the platform in the beginning. Here's how I view it now, which brings me joy um, and, and enables me to 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 truly sort of keep going with it. Is that I honestly think that it's not about me. I don't think that I don't view me sending the messages to people as being about me. What I honestly think that it is is it is a father whose daughter is now in college or older that used to watch The Office together. And there is either a birthday or some event or just wanting to make a connection again and using me and those fond memories of the character, of the show, of whatever, to really reconnect together. And that's true for adult kids and spouses and girlfriends and their kids. And I mean, it really goes truly across the gamut from age and sex and everything. Um, uh, sex meaning gender, by the way. Um, I, and so I, that's how I view it, that it's, it truly is a, I'm just, I'm just helping to make a connection and it's not really about me. So I try to not make it about me. I try to make it about the two people who are wanting a connection. All of you guys, for the most part, were pretty unknown as you were cast for The Office. I mean, Carell had some stuff going on. As you had mentioned, Rain was probably the most established. Krasinski was like literally a frat boy in college still. But do you ever think about if you wouldn't have gotten that part, and that part has changed your life 
I mean, immensely, right? But if you wouldn't have gotten that part, what do you think your life may have looked like? Well, it's funny. I'll tell you a story. Um, when Steve, uh, when Steve left, there was a big party and people were looking for remembrances, et cetera. And Allison Jones, who was the casting director, legend, um, she came up to me at this party and she was like, you know, I went back and I was like trying to find some, cause she saves everything. She's like, I was trying to find something significant to give to Steve, like from the cast, from his original casting process. And she was like, this is what she said to me anyway. She was like, I didn't really find anything that cool, but I wanted you to have this. And it was just a singular piece of paper, clearly very old. I mean, at that point, it was probably eight years, nine years old, sitting in her cabinet. And it was, uh, it said Kevin Malone, and there were three names that seemed like they were in no particular order. Uh, my name, Brian Baumgartner, uh, Eric Stone Street, and Jorge Garcia. So... Eric Stone Street obviously went on to Modern Family and Jorge Garcia obviously went on to Lost amongst other things. So I don't know, who knows? Maybe I would have been on Modern Family or Lost. Maybe that, maybe we would have just switched, but I'm, uh, I'm very happy with, with how things worked out as I'm sure the two of them are as well. I'm actually kind of weighing it in my head. A million dollars on Cameo or... Eric Stone Street, Modern Family Money, working with Sofia Vergara. Hmm, which one <laughs> would we take? <laughs> when did you find out and how did you find out that you had gotten the part? Um, you know, I mean, now I know that, um, and I don't say this in any uh, disparaging way, Greg Daniels is a genius and he takes his time particularly when he has time. When he has time, he takes his time. Um, but at the time, which is me saying time a lot, I didn't know this. So I, I only met with them once. So I, I only, uh, me, them meaning Ben Silverman, uh, executive producer, Greg Daniels, Ken Quapas, uh, who directed the pilot. And I'm sure everybody weighed in. And I'm also sure now that it was Greg's uh, decision. And I met with them and it was a few weeks. Like, I think I was told they were very interested and, you know, maybe like I knew that it had gotten down to those three or, you know, not, not who they were, but three names or something, but it was a few weeks. And um, yeah, then I just, I just got a call and said that, that I was the guy and probably you're starting to shoot Monday or something. I, I don't really, I don't really remember the details of that, but what I do remember is it being weeks and I really, really wanted it. I really wanted it. And, um, and yeah, that's, I don't know. That's kind of, that's what I remember. Was the Kevin Malone that you put forth in the audition, the same Kevin Malone that we get to see on the show, had you already essentially flushed out those mannerisms and that character and that, that delivery? A little bit. I mean, I think that there there's a progression of all of those things, even once the show started, um, you know, because um, I mean, so the short answer is yes, kind of. 
But I think that the writers on the show really fell in love with Kevin's uh, childlike uh, sensibility and humor. I'll just put it that way. So that started to increase um, quite a bit. And I actually had struggled as like, you know, an actor who took himself seriously as an actor in creating characters, like how, how to sort of justify what I was feeling as sort of a shift. Um, and I, I have a nerdy justification for this, which is simply that uh, Kevin <clears throat> early on was very scared of the cameras and the crews that were shooting in Dunder Mifflin. And as he became more comfortable, probably went out for drinks with some of them after work, uh, more of his uh, real personality came out. Man, I would love to see Kevin off camera. The real, <laughs> just pounding shots with college kids in Scranton. It must have been something. <laughs> the other thing that was really interesting about the book was the Jim not cheating on Pam storyline and how Krasinski put his foot down. And it's fascinating because at that point, you guys had such a relationship with the audience that he knew, and I'm sure all of you guys knew that any significant deviations could turn off the audience. And at that point, you had built so much trust with them that you had to be so careful and in, in just really making a mockery of it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will say this about that, that um, it kind of what I started this conversation with, that it's an oral history. And so I think people remember things slightly differently and the intention of maybe how far things were going to go was different. I mean, I, I, what's fun, what's crazy is, is that I directed uh, one of the episodes that, uh, that has been discussed, the episodes after hours, where there was a character while half of the office was on the road, where there was some at least potential for uh, romantic interludes. I don't even know what that means. And what I remember, I don't even remember myself exactly how far it was going to go. I don't remember any direct and specific cheating. But what I remember are hours and hours of discussion about how far can we go in this moment? How, how close can we get? How would Jim behave? Um, and, and, and yeah, and not, not wanting the fans to feel betrayed or, or anything else. Um, and, you know, Greg Daniels is very clear from his perspective that, um, you know, through that last season when there's, you know, when Jim goes to Philadelphia again, that he never intended there to be, um, you know, on Pam's side with the boom, specific affair that happened, but it was all about, um, all about, you know, them ultimately coming back and deciding that they wanted the same thing with each other as they sort of always had. So anyway, that's all I'll say about that. I'm not really hedging. I think it's more because there's been a lot of discussion about, about that, uh, that particular storyline. And you know, I don't know how far it was scripted to go, um, but yeah, it's, I, I, to me, that's what's all fascinating about it. The, the, the core end of it is the same, which is 
um, we did not want, people did not want to let the fans down. When you create a memorable character like Kevin Malone, it's a gift and a curse. The gift is you get to be on TV for a decade and you get to have a podcast and do cameos and write books and you have a career after a career. It's amazing, right? But on the flip side, typecasting is a real thing in Hollywood. When you finished up, was your mindset, hey, I'd like to continue acting, but was there also a fear that people are only going to ever see you as Kevin Malone? You know, I think that's a really good question because I I spent a... I spent several years um, intentionally distancing myself from from that, partly for the reason that that you bring up, uh, not wanting to do anything that was quote unquote the same. And um, I think that what happened was the show, as I've been saying to people recently, the show was big. We were NBC's number one scripted show. I mean, we were a hit. Like, let's I, I don't want to mistake that but we weren't like friends or something, you know, like we weren't like billboard in Times Square and on the cover of magazines, like every month, you know, it, it wasn't that. And what has happened is as the show has sort of taken off again and, and even bigger than it was before to now be the most watched show of any show on television. Um, I have, that question has interested me. And I was like, okay, let's stop running from the guy. Um, let's just have Brian examine this and the story because the business was always interesting to me. And um, it's, it's, Kevin exists and Kevin is there and I will always and for all time be Kevin. Um, but I decided it, it was time to stop, to stop running from him and um and really and really get in there to try to find the root of what happened great answer man well congratulations the new book is called the oral history of dunder mifflin anybody who is a fan of the office should read this because it is freaking awesome man and congratulations oh. on everything you've been able to do since since the end of the show and you're always a wonderful chat man thank you thank you so much i appreciate it thanks Cheers. brian have a great have a great thanksgiving thanks you too take care brother all right bye-bye All right, that was Brian Baumgartner. Make sure to check out his new book, Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, an oral history of the office, as well as his podcast. He has that incredible podcast breaking down episode by episode of the office. Dude is an absolute legend. Kevin Malone forever. Next up, legendary actor, awesome dude, Keith David, season two of Creep Show. Such a great actor, such a great chat. Enjoy. I've got the great Keith David joining me on the Endless Hustle. Keith, you are like crazy busy. It's funny. I was thinking about it. Is this probably the busiest point of your career? You've had an unbelievable career, but is this the busiest point? Well, I got to say, uh, it hasn't stopped. And I've been, you know, really mad busy. Um, and, and, you know, busy is good. You know, I mean, um, you know, that song, One Monkey Don't Stop, No Show. One... Uh, and well, even several bouts of COVID don't stop no show. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily going away soon. So we have to find a way to move through it with some grace. 
And I think that for the most part, we have been. The new project is Creep Show 2. You're in the horror film game. I love it. Horror, horror genre. Tell me all about Creep Show 2. Well, I had a great time. You know, I mean, the first iteration was, you know, the very first one was actually wonderful. I mean, if you if you're if you're into horror stuff, and you like to be scared, creeped out, um, this is the place to be. I mean, I I happen to love my particular episode because I I love those opportunities when I get to like play the devil. You know, you know, you get you get to be because I remember being told as a kid that if the devil were to appear before you. He would appear in such beautiful raiment that you couldn't resist it. And and I, one of the things I, I, I like about this, you know, in keeping with that, how these stories, you know, are, are um, different versions of that because you get wooed by so many different things. Sometimes she looks like a beautiful woman. Sometimes she looks like money. Sometimes she looks like, you know, that thing you think you've always wanted whatever however it appears there's always that little shiny thing uh being flashed in front of you and we're like you know fish to just go you know <laughs> you've been a part of so many iconic projects what was the project that if you were to put money on it you never thought would become a hit that ended up becoming a hit Hmm. Well, I, I have to say when um when we did Platoon, I knew it was special because uh it was such an ensemble piece and there were so many really wonderful actors. Uh it was a great story. We got to we got to be immersive in a way that at that point in my career, I had no idea. I mean, I'd never, you know, when I was doing a play, I could, you know, go to the gym and work out, you know, if I was playing a part that really demanded rigorous um, stamina, I could go and do that. But to actually be in the environment. Now, I believe uh, Tom Berenger, he said he knew that this was going to be something else. I think... I think Willem might have had some idea that um, it, I mean we all knew that it was a it was a special project you know it was it was different it was other than the normal fare that you know we usually get to do but who knew that it would have resounded in the way it has and be as resonant as it still is You're obviously from Harlem, New York. I'm a New York transplant now from Philly originally. Okay. But New York is a city unlike any other, and it can transform us both personally and professionally. So for you, what role did New York play in your life? How did it help influence you both personally and professionally? Well, it's like the song says, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Uh, because, uh, you know, New York gets a bad rep as far as, you know, you know, it, uh, uh, people being unfriendly and all that kind of, you know, they, 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 they say that kind of stuff. But actually, I find New Yorkers are certainly no more unfriendly than anywhere else. If you need directions, somebody will give you directions. Some people may t flip you off, but, you know, that could happen anywhere. Um, 
really, I mean, I, I, I have always found in New York, if you approach people respectfully, most of the time you will get a respectful response. Not always, but you know, you don't know what kind of mood somebody, somebody is in. And, and that is something that exists everywhere, in every city, in every country in the world. You'll get somebody who is very nice to you and you'll get other people who are just not. Uh, but my, my, re my being reared in New York, you know, I'd come across all kinds of attitudes. So it's like, you, you can't really uh, pull one over on me in that sense. You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I can deal with your attitude no matter how crappy it gets. There was a great profile in The New Yorker on Jeremy Strong that just came out. He plays Kendall Roy on Succession, arguably the best acting being done on TV right now. And in it, he talks about living in this kind of bohemian little tiny apartment in New York when he first came as a kind of unemployed actor. And then I was also just watching Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie about Jonathan Larson, who obviously created Rent. And much of it really shows his artist's life in this you know, crappy little place in Greenwich Village. And it made me think when you're an artist in New York, the struggle you have to go through before you actually break through and make it. What was that moment for you, Keith? What was that moment of struggle in New York as you were molding yourself as an artist where you kind of looked around and were still deciding, am I going to actually make it? Am I going to have a career in this business? I wanted to be an actor my whole life. And... I mean, I, I don't know if I always, always knew and embraced, but you know, I, I, I did learn pretty early in life, but especially in this business, nobody promised you anything. You know, uh, as an artist, um, you know, I do this because I love it. I do this because I'm compelled because I'm called to do it, but no one ever said you were going to make any money. I remember one of my teachers said, you may, you know, you may not, you may never become a millionaire, but if you, if you work hard, you can, uh, you can be in the theater and make a living enough to, you know, be able to uh, buy yourself some popcorn every once in a while, and maybe take a trip somewhere, but you may not necessarily be rich. That's the exception and not the rule. Uh, I think that we get, we get fooled by all the, uh, you know, magazines and all this stuff that, you know, you know, and now magazine shows, we read about the stars and how much money they make, how much money, they, you know, how, what kind of extravagant lifestyles they live. And everybody gets fooled into thinking that just because you're on TV, that means that you're, you know, super rich. That's really not true. The life of a, the, you know, the life of an actor, an art, certainly actor as artist, and there is a distinction. Um, because there's a big difference between an actor and a movie star. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you get an opportunity to be a movie star, you can make lots of money. Sometimes you can make lots of money for a long time. Does that, does that necessarily make you an actor? We can have a longer conversation about that. But actors, actors act. Actors, you know, do the theater. The actor, actors travel the country doing the theater actor actors go around the world doing theater but that doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be, you're gonna you're gonna be a millionaire so i mean i i love to work and and i i feel blessed and highly favored that 
I work most of the time, and sometimes I make a little money, which is even greater, you know, which is all the better. Eth, congratulations. Creep Show 2 is on its way out. Thanks for a fabulous chat, my man. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Take care. All right, folks, that was, of course, Keith David. Make sure to check out the second season of Creep Show. Great horror show. And Keith is just an awesome actor. Love that dude. We're finishing it up with the founders of one of my favorite breweries. I'd said this at the top of the episode. Their beer is so good. If you ever have a chance and you're in Philadelphia, head to Downingtown, their, their flagship location. They also have a place in Center City, Philadelphia now. But Victory Brewing, I absolutely love, love, love their beers. And after getting to know these guys, it made me love the establishment even more. Here they are, the founders of Victory Brewing Company. All right, we've got a great day on the Endless Hustle because I was just telling Bill and Ron, founders of Victory Brewing, as a Philly boy, you guys are my all-time favorite craft beer. It is a pleasure to have you on the show what a great story you guys have around the beer. And we're going to talk all about it. So let's first start with the beginnings. How did Bill and Ron start Victory Brewing? <laughs> well, we appreciate your, uh, your approach to our, our delicious products. We met on a school bus in 1973. Do you remember the bus number, Ron? Uh, was it 33 or 31? I thought it was, yeah, it was 33, 31-ish. So, uh, yeah, we were uh, 10 years old at the time and uh, new to the school district. So we, uh, we uh, found a lot to uh, appreciate in one another as newcomers. So going from 10 years old to then founding a successful beer empire, that's not the usual story. So how does that actually happen, Ron? Like, how do you guys go from, hey, we're childhood friends to we're going to start Victory Brewing? Well, you know, what do you think about when you think about childhood friends going through their different periods of life, there hits that time where you discover alcohol. Uh, and in our case, Bill and I were drinking beer together. Right. And we fell in love with beer. Uh, we really did. And, and first we fell in love with the effects, you know, and then after, after, you know, you sort of got used to what the effects are, then we actually got interested in drinking better beer. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's sort of it, it was a long progression, but it went from being interested in in better beer, uh, going in search of better beer, homebrewing, trying to homebrew better and then starting a brewery. And I'm sure Bill can elaborate on some of the stories to get there. But that's that in a nutshell, yeah. sort of evolved that way, as you might expect. My dad taught me to homebrew, Arthur. Um, gosh, early days, 1979, 1980, when it was first made legal. And when I say taught me to homebrew, basically I, I got to clean the bottles and do all the grunt work, right? Um, and then post-college, I had a different appreciation for beer and uh, picked up his kit and started playing around with it and gave Ron a, a homebrewing kit for Christmas of 1985. And so that was kind of the pivotal moment when we said, hey, this beer thing is, uh, is exciting to us to create new flavors and uh, share them and basically make the whole social scene around beer. So how does it actually turn into a business? At what point do you make Victory an actual sustainable business? Well, you talk your relatives out of money. Um, you got to do that part. No, we, uh, we, we always talked about 
running our own brewery. And then finally on New Year's Eve of 1993-94, after a couple of bottles of Chimay Ale with our wives, we, uh, we propositioned them with the idea of writing our own business plan. And they gave us three months. We were done in uh, two and a half. And, um, you know, I made a joke about finding, you know, money from people to start a company. But, you know, once you do get the, the money from friends and family, um, you got a real commitment now. You got to actually see it through and make it a business. How do you begin to scale? I mean, it's one thing to, again, start a business, but, and we were obviously joking around before we got started, but I meant it in all seriousness. As a kid who grew up in Philadelphia, Victory has such an enormous presence. And now you guys have been able to expand everywhere. How were you able to build scale from just a local brewery? Well, I mean, it started with picking the right scale to start with, honestly. Um, So, you know, both Bill and I had worked in other breweries, you know, before we started this, this brewery, we, we worked for other breweries and made mistakes on their dime uh, that were very educational. Uh, But one of the things that I took away from it was the brewery that I had started at uh, in the United States was uh, Old Dominion Brewing Company in Virginia. And uh, it had a, a 25 barrel brew house. And I liked the way that that worked. I, it was a little bit big for what we were considering, what we thought we would be selling in the first few years. But I was, I was pretty, and Bill too, we, we, we saw the, the advantage of that size because it allowed us to grow with that particular brew house uh, big enough uh, and make enough beer, therefore enough profits off of the beer to be able to afford the next step up. Some people make the mistake of buying too small and then they max out their seven or eight barrel system. And then they really don't have the money uh, coming in from that in order to fund the next size up. So fundamentally, we made a good decision to start that way. And then it was always, you know, when we scaled, we, we always, from, a, from an equipment and a, and a production standpoint, uh, it was measured, but always ahead of the curve in terms of the sell, you know, what we would need to sell. Now, Bill, who was out in the trenches selling the beer uh, and marketing the beer for years and years, of course, he could tell you how he approached, you know, how, how he approached uh, scaling up the, the, the way it looked on the shelf and the way it went through the market. Yeah, no, I mean, Ron hit all the, the key points in terms of uh, scaling the operation. I also would like to point out, you know, he talked about, we took a pretty sizable risk in the size of the setup we made. So we were putting pressure on ourselves for performance. Um, You know, we had families to feed, we had an audience to make happy. Um, And I guess scale of the audience is probably an often overlooked aspect of it. Um, We were not able to find wholesalers that would price our beer, or I should say appreciate our beer to give us the, the price that we were needing in order to hit the market and be profitable. So we made a pivot and we opened up a tap room on premises, which gave us direct connection to our audience. And our audience informed us as to what they wanted us to do and, and how they wanted us to taste and appear. So we had a tremendous opportunity handed to us, or I should say we accepted in embracing an audience um, that really wanted to help us learn, help us grow. And um, that was absolutely essential to success. You guys just celebrated your 25th anniversary in February. So first of all, congratulations. As you look back over these last 25 years, what are some of the experiences, the innovations, the the learnings that you've been able to really accumulate over two and a half decades? 
Uh, real quick, funny story is when we did our renovations to our Downingtown tap room, our flagship tap room in 2007, um, we wanted to install a state-of-the-art growler filler, the big glass growlers. We were doing a great trade in them. And so Ron approached this Austrian company that made them, but they made them primarily for European brew pubs where you only have three or four beers on tap. And so that's all they were offering. Uh, he appealed to their wonderful uh, sense of engineering and sense of vanity by ordering a 20 uh, manifold filler, which of course they rejected, said, we don't do that. And he's like, why would I contact the best company in the world for this if I didn't know you could do it? And so we had the first one in the United States, this amazing 20 head filler basically for, uh, for filling growlers, which was great for our audience. Ron, how do you guys continue to innovate beer over 25 years? It's one thing to start out, but to make sure that you continue to bring product that keeps people interested has got to be an incredible challenge. How do you innovate? Oh, it's an incredible challenge, uh, but it's it's really the fun part of brewing. Uh, and given the situation that we're in now with so many different breweries, the need to innovate is stronger. Turning to some of the all of the talent that we have working in our breweries, and we have some really stellar uh, brewers, head brewers, brewmasters that are really pushing the bounds of innovation. And of course, Bill and I are always there as cheerleaders and often give our, our insight, whether it is useful or not uh, in terms of some of those developments. But um, the key is really to, to open up uh, the creativity to a broader field than just Bill and I. It's to really let some of these stud brewers, as we call them, uh, come up with some great stuff. And, and that's what we have to embrace. And we love it. So you guys obviously have the, the flagship down, Downingtown location. You just recently opened up the Philadelphia location. So you're expanding. As a kid who lived in Center City, and I was telling you this off camera before we got started, it's awesome that you now get to hit that audience. Where, wh what happens next? Like, how far does this thing expand in your mind? You know, I think that we're a drop, a pebble dropped in a still uh, waters, right? You know, the ripples are strongest um, by the center and the center still is southeastern Pennsylvania. We sell in 35 states, a couple of countries, but um, we have a home here and we have an audience that's, uh, as you pointed out, has, you know, been very generous to us um, in their support. So we are looking more locally than we are looking regionally. Uh, you know, the Philadelphia flagship is, is a tremendous new growth opportunity for us. We want to fully leverage that, execute well there before we look too far forward. So I'm sorry that answer may not uh, promise too much on the horizon, but we like to focus on what we got in front of us. What's been the reception with Philly so far? Because you guys have such an incredible presence here. What, is actually, what has been the reception, especially as we come out of this very difficult time and now people get to actually congregate together and drink again? It's been a strong reception. Um, unfortunately, the weather's just turned, so our outdoor space isn't getting as much use as, uh, as it could, but people are still grabbing their pints and taking them outside. And Ron, what are your impressions? I mean, I just see a lot of smiling, happy faces every time I'm there. Yeah, no, it's been, everybody is extremely positive. Our staff there is phenomenal in terms of, of, of knowledge of the products and graciousness to, to all of the guests that are coming through there. You know, one of the things that I thought was amazing was in talking to our team that assembled, uh, you know, this great team that is working there is that there was an, a, a great, there was a lot of 
uh, interest in working for our company. Uh, I guess, you know, as you know, the, you know, the whole hospitality business has been decimated from pandemic and uh, it was really exciting to see a lot of people excited to get back into, into the business and, and that they were super excited to work for uh, a company like Victory. And that makes me super proud. And I think that makes a difference to the guests that arrive there. I think they'll notice it. Fantastic point because um, what we what we got was for some of the first team members recruited for the Philly location started calling their friends and saying, hey, I think this is going to be different. I think this is going to be special. So there really is this internal enthusiasm that's translating to the audience. And, um, you know, when you build a beer brand, obviously there's a social aspect to it. So it's just really exciting to see those tailwinds, those emotional tailwinds catch fire and uh, really make a location animated. It's funny you mentioned that because when I was at the Downingtown location, you could feel the culture that you guys have built there. And it, it, there's almost this family-like feeling when you're there. You don't feel like you're at some kind of, you know, desolate factory. You feel like you're amongst friends and you get to drink something that everybody loves. When you guys were building Victory, was that something that was very prevalent in your minds, the culture that you were trying to build and how the social aspect of beer would play into it? Yeah, Ron, if you don't mind, I'll jump in first on this one. Um, in 1987, Arthur, Ron and I took a trip to, uh, to Europe, my first trip abroad, and uh, we experienced beer gardens. What an incredible thing. Families, multiple generations hanging out, appreciating the product that we love so much. So we did want to catch that vibe in all of our locations and make them family friendly. And I think that as the years have passed, I used to think that as a brewmaster, my job was to make a flavor, but that flavor leads to a group congregating. And that group congregating with that flavor leads to an experience. So the beautiful thing is, as brewmasters, we thought we were making beer, but we were actually making memories for people. And that is just a great job to have. Yeah, that is a spectacular point, Bill. And I, and I think that, you know, we, we feel some of the things I'm most proud about what we've done uh, with Victory is that the community that we've that that has embraced us and as we've become the center of downtown community in a lot of cases you'll see teacher groups um, getting together there uh, various businesses and of course you know the demographics are across the board uh, and it just feels like the center of community in downtown when we started I don't think that we thought that we would ever have such an influence on that community around us, uh, though we did want to make it family friendly, I, I'm a little bit surprised that that became such a part of the community. And I think it was because we're family oriented and uh, this is a bedroom community in downtown. This is it's mostly families that live around here. So it was a it was a it was a business decision that worked on so many levels. It's hard to imagine how successful it's been. Let's talk about the monkeys. And when I say that, not the band, obviously, but about the cultural phenomenon that is the monkeys and Golden Monkey and all the monkey stuff that you've been able to do with Victory. You and I, all of us were joking that when I lived in Philadelphia, I always had my fridge stocked with Victory. And one of my favorite beers was Golden Monkey, although it's incredibly powerful. So had to go in moderation. But this whole monkey thing has become a phenomenon for you guys. I want to talk about how it started and where it's going. Well, um, it started with Ron 
not having any Belgian style triple at home to appreciate. So we had to make one. Maybe you should tell the story, Ron. Yeah, right. So um, my wife and I uh, took our honeymoon in Belgium. And when we, we fell in love with uh, the triple style, particularly Bruges triple. And when we came home, we wanted to uh, you know, remember Bruges with a, with a bottle of that. And so it just so happened that uh, when, when we had our first child, uh, we, we did all of our children, all four of them at home, but on our first child uh, at home, uh, we had a very successful birth uh, and we popped open that bottle that we had saved from Bruges. Um, and so fast forward another year or a couple of years and child two, we got another bottle of this Bruges triple, but by the time our third one came around, Bruges, uh, that brewery had actually closed. Uh, it was being made at that point by another brewery, but since we had a brewery at that point, um, I convinced Bill that we should, you know, make some sort of a Belgian triple uh, because I, I need one for the birth of my third kid. So uh, eventually we got around to making that beer. And of course, Bill, why don't you tell them the story of the name? Because I think that's, that's a super interesting twist on the whole development. We had, um, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, so I, sort of the naming and, and branding was always on me with, you know, full collaboration from Ron. Um, I actually had the name in advance of the beer and um, I liked the name for various reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, golden denotes something of premium quality, right? And all European ingredients, this amazing monastery yeast, this great tradition behind it. And then monkey, like what, what does monkey say to you, Arthur? Well, I, monkey means different things at different times in my life. Yeah, so. <laughs> but usually you're laughing. So, you know, usually right. something fun, something, you know, energetic. And so I felt that, you know, with a premium beer that was nine and a half percent, but didn't feel like it was nine and a half percent as you were sipping it, that the golden monkey name was appropriate because you would taste the quality and you would be seduced by the quality. And then you'd start acting like a monkey before too long. So pretty much it's like, we know you're going to become a monkey when you drink this. So let's name it Golden Monkey. <laughs> a little bit of a fair warning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing you guys probably have some of your own experiences around drinking Golden Monkey that are are pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspirational. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, early on, one of our uh, local competitors who are really good friends of ours, um, they they were having a hard time keeping their taps full with their own beers. So they put Golden Monkey on tap and um, they had to remove it because there were too many staff members that um, didn't quite understand the uh, strength of it and acted up uh, at, to the point where they need to be disciplined. And so that was a learning moment for us. Um, you know, Ron's story about needing Golden Monkey to celebrate a birth is kind of the reverse of some of the stories I've heard. I've heard how a Golden Monkey has been responsible for the birth at times. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, those are very, very, very memorable stories. And talk about bringing people together. I mean, certainly it is, it is a beer that does so. Branding is such an important part of any type of marketing, any type of business, right? And we're obviously laughing, but you came up with this name and you're right. We laugh when we say monkeys. Be, I feel because of that, obviously it's great beer, but I also feel because of that, you were able to develop a very loyal following around the brand 
when did you guys realize that was happening? When did you guys realize that people were responding to the monkey brand? Well, I mean, I'll jump in quickly here. Uh, it was very uh, slow progression, but uh, building almost like a logarithmic uh, curve if you were to look at it, because I think we started it in 1999. And I don't think it was until maybe 2009, 10, maybe even 11, that it became our number one selling beer. Uh, before that, it was Hop Devil and it had led since the beginning. So it really started picking up. And then as, as Hop Devil sort of its growth flattened, uh, Golden Monkey just picked up and it just kept picking up and it kept picking up. And we knew we had something going, really going strong by I'd say 2010 or so, just because it was becoming our best selling beer and still growing. And, and the stories and the legend uh, of the monkey were, were starting to get a little bit uh, more prevalent. Yeah. So Arthur, also in respect to your question, um, from the branding standpoint, you know, we wanted to personify some of our products because the way we look at it is, you know, the social interaction that occurs with beer consumption is probably the most important part of the experience, right? So if we made the golden monkey a personified thing, um, it's like someone you would invite to a party, right? The hop devil was a character as well, hop wallop was a character we developed. So personifying our brand so that they could become friends at a party was um, somewhat part of our concept. You can also see it in your packaging, by the way, which you guys have done such a brilliant job with because it's almost cartoonish, the characters that you've created around the labeling. And it's, it, listen, when you go into a beer distributor, there's a gajillion beers, right? But your artistry, if nobody had ever even heard of Victory, it stands out because you look at these characters and you're like, what is this? This is fun. Yeah, and that was also an opportunity early on because, you know, when we were opening up, we wrote our business plan that there was only 460 breweries in the United States. So wasting your time, your precious time with your audience trying to explain an IPA or a Belgian triple was, was useless. Let's create a brand. Let's make a golden monkey. Let's make a hop devil. Let's intrigue them with something that they've never had before and make them want that new experience. I love that. One other thing that I also want to talk about is you guys are giving back to the community with the Brotherly Love Community Fund. So not only do you have a huge, huge place in Philadelphians heart from a drinking perspective, but you're also using that to give back. Let, I, I, I would love for you guys to really expound on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, you know, we think the name just completely resonates within Philadelphia and also to a much larger sensibility, that appreciation of beer with friends. Um, and so we saw an obvious opportunity to reflect that, uh, that situation and benefit others through a benevolent aspect to this. So uh, the Brotherly Love Community Fund is something that we continue to put dollars into as the sales increase. And um, deploy them to meaningful causes so yeah, we're I mean, heading into go ahead go ahead I, Ron. I was, I was just going to say that uh, you know sort of going back to that whole community thing bill and i have always been you know uh trying to be part of the community and have become part of the community and part of the, being in the community is really looking at your resources together and and we're all living in the same uh you know same area and we're living in the same watershed so uh, years ago, we started the Headwaters Fund, uh, which was really definitely steered towards water conservation and water quality. Um, 
but uh, we we saw this brotherly love fund as an opportunity to expand that reach to the community beyond just the water resources, but you know the community in a broader perspective. I just wanted to sort of bring it sort of how it evolved into that particular fund. We're heading into 2022. Where does victory go next? What's the game plan? The game plan is to continue to satisfy the audience we've created because, you know, that audience continues to expand. The Philadelphia location was a big step forward for us. Um, and so we're basically broadened the horizon uh, of whom we're serving and um, developing great flavors and great beers. You want to talk a little bit more about beers? Yeah, I mean, I can tell, I can tell you that there's going to be some interesting news on the monkey fronts coming yeah. in the end of the first or beginning of the second quarter of next year yes indeed i don't know run, run with that i got i want to hear all about monkeys <laughs> i don't know if lawrence wants me to talk too much in detail about it but suffice it to say it'll fit right within the profile of a you know nine and a half percent uh bottle of fun yeah and it's got a twist that brings it back to sort of older belgian style as well, um, while being thoroughly modern in its orientation. So the monkey family is expanding. That's exciting. For each one of you, because of the joy that you've been able to bring to countless lives through bringing them beer, is there a memory for each one of you that really sticks in your head about the impact that you made with Victory? Um, yeah, I'll go first. Early on, uh, there was a, a lunchtime here in the Downingtown tap room and I was behind the bar and um, I guess it was sort of a father and son, maybe two sons and father. The, the older man was probably in his eighties. Uh, they sat down, they ordered Prima pills and the older gentleman, after he sipped it, exclaimed, this is what beer used to taste like. And I just, it floored me that I was able to take him back to a time and a memory that just struck him. That's awesome. How about you, Ron? There's, there are a lot of those kinds of moments. A couple that, that come to my mind is when I showed up uh, in the parking lot at my usual seven o'clock in the morning uh, on a dark Wednesday, and there was a hundred people waiting outside the door to get in on uh, a, you know, a limited release of some big bottle, a barrel-aged uh, Storm King, which was called Dark Intrigue. Mm. Um, you know, amazing, amazing, uh, amazing seeing that and just seeing, my God, there's this many people really love our beer and want to be part of it. You know, and other ones where we, another very recent one is when the pandemic first started and, uh, you know, we had to shut down all of our tap rooms and the downtown being our flagship, um, you know, there were a lot of people disappointed that they couldn't get the beer. So, we ran a special on uh, on uh, crowlers, so you know, thirty-two ounce cans for three for ten dollars, I believe. Um, yeah. And we had hundreds and hundreds and thousands in a weekend be sold. And the number of people that just mentioned to me, or mentioned to Bill, or mentioned to our taproom staff how how they were so thankful that Victory was, you know, doing this deal that they could, you know, enjoy still the beer at home. And because it was Crowlers, we could fill any of the drafts that we wanted. Um, you know, so it wasn't just what's offered in a can or a bottle tip. It was like everything. Um, and there's a lot of people that have their favorites that are draft only. Um, so, 
seeing that response and seeing their thanking us uh, for being customers uh, was just amazing. It's just uh, another, another, you know, one of those things you sort of pinch yourself. Go, did that just happen? Yeah, for sure. Before I let you guys go, I want to tell you a funny story. So Please. I dated a young lady from Ligonier, Pennsylvania, which is right outside Pencil, right outside Pittsburgh, big beer area. And her dad brewed beer in his basement. So I went through this phase where I'm like, I want to brew my own beer. So I had a townhouse in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania at the time. So I pretty much built my own little brewery down there. And you realize how much of an art form it is. But Hop Devil was my favorite beer. Like I love okay. very hoppy beers. But we, no matter how hard I tried, I could never get it to the level you guys get it to. And it was like mind boggling. So I wanted to ask you before I go, Hop Devil, like, how did, like, talk to me about the creation of Hop Devil. How are you able to create that flavor? It's one of my all time favorite beers. I, I tried everything, could not get it there. Well, I'm glad you tried. It was fun doing it, right? And you enjoyed the whole experience. Hop Devil is probably a very good example of our vision of victory. Having trained in Germany, we wanted to take the best of European traditions and reanimate them here in the United States with highest quality ingredients. So Hop Devil's built out of all German malt, whole flower American hops, yet the style sort of goes back to England and IPA. So it really does sort of summarize the opportunity we felt we had here in the United States to revive uh, old beer styles in a, in a very flavorful and bold way. I mean, Ron, if you want to get into any more of the details of the brewing, so Arthur can get it right next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, the concept taste-wise of that beer was that let's, let's make a real IPA that's going to have some serious bitterness units to it. But I was afraid, we were both afraid that this might be a little bit much at the time to just hit with 70, 80 BUs without bringing some balance in. So the, the real, the, I think the genius in Hop Devil was putting in a fair amount of caramel malt so that there's this sweetness and this bitterness. It's like a high wire active balance. Like you can have a balanced beer can be like a Hellas style beer with just a little bit of malt and just a little bit of hops. Uh, whereas the Hop Devil is this balancing act of a hell of a lot of hops and a hell of a lot of malty malts. Uh, and so it's a little bit tricky to get that balance right. And frankly, we, you know, it's it's a it's a challenging brew to get that balance right. Even you know, as you go through different hop changes through the years, we've had to you know, with each crop year, make adjustments. Yep. And getting that just right has always been a challenge. Yeah, Hop Devil just pops in your mouth, and my IPAs would come in so flat, and I would be so pissed off because I would be like, "How the hell do they get this thing to explode the way they do?" So. It was, it was just awesome stuff. But again, this has been a pleasure, gentlemen. Congratulations pleasure. on everything that you've built with Victory. Congrats on the Philadelphia Tap Room. And it, we, honestly, I can't wait to see the new monkeys that will be launched next year. It sounds really exciting. Big, big fan here. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Arthur. Thanks, Congratulations Arthur. on Thanks, everything, yeah. guys. And keep doing all the great work you're doing in the Philadelphia community. As a, as a Philadelphian, my heart and soul is always kind of there, even though I live in New York. And it's I love people that are able to give back, especially from a small or local business in the community. It's always awesome. Will do, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Been a pleasure. Take care. Take care, guys.
All right, folks, that was, of course, the Victory Brewing, guys. I love those two. Man, they're welcome back anytime. I'll talk beer with people for hours on end. All right, that's it for another great episode of Endless Hustle. Make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, rate, you know the deal. On Instagram, we're at Endless Hustle Pod. On Twitter, at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at It's Me Arthur Cade on Instagram. We are back on Thursday with two pretty unique dudes on the show. Catfish is Neve Shulman. He's got a new collaboration with Zell that we're talking about, as well as just his incredible career with Catfish, how he built it, Dancing with the Stars, all that great stuff. We're finishing it up with one of the most interesting men on the planet, the modern day Frank Sinatra, Hugh Hefner, whatever you want to call him, Dan Bilzerian, one of the biggest stars on social media. Unbelievable hour-long chat with that guy. I think you guys are going to love it. All right, guys, we'll see you on Thursday. Thanks, as always, for listening and watching. Keep endlessly hustling.